Welcome to The Future Strategist. Today, uh, my guest is again, Greg Cochran. Hi, Greg. How are you doing? Oh, fine. So today we're going to be talking about the Fermi paradox. And this is one of those rare topics where I actually know, I think at least I know more than Greg does. I've um, published on this particular topic. So the Fermi paradox um, is the, the fact that we don't see other life in the universe. You know, the giant universe, the Earth doesn't seem to be particularly rare in any way that at least we can identify. And yet, of course, we have no evidence that there is any life outside of our solar system. And uh, Enrique Fermi, who, you know, who was a famous physicist, worked on the Manhattan Project, he, you know, said this is this is kind of odd. Uh, do you agree with my summary of the Fermi paradox, Greg? Um, basically, uh, I, I would say one reason he was saying it was odd was in the context of, you know, if people could harness atomic energy, the although still extremely difficult, uh, sending uh, probes or ships to other stars becomes more possible. And, you know, so he, that was established when they had this conversation around 1950. And so he was saying, how come? You know, they're not all over the place. Yes. I mean, life on Earth certainly spreads to fill every possible cranny. Uh, you'd think evolution would favor life on other planets that also wanted it to spread, at least on a few planets. And it's kind of weird. So one thing that's not a solution to the Fermi paradox is that, you know, there's a large distance between uh, different solar systems or different galaxies, because while you know, our galaxy is certainly large. It's it's older than it is large. Even traveling at one percent of the speed of light, which you think we'd almost will almost certainly be able to do in a thousand years if we don't destroy ourselves, or you know, have civilization go back to being cavemen. That you know, you can reach quite a few places in a billion years. So we uh, have we could if we really wanted to probably build something that would go at one percent of the speed of light now. Yeah. And then you start getting a little more advanced technology where, you know, you're using self-replicating probes where we're sending out probes at 1% of the speed of light. They go into a solar system, they build copies of itself, and then, you know, they send those copies out. That really, you know, that kind of technology, which is not, we're not talking like warp drives or anything, that should be enough to, you know, explore your whole supercluster in a billion years. And so why haven't, why hasn't that happened? Well, I think one thing we should make just slightly clear is we're really talking about intelligent life. I mean, for example, if there was moss on a planet of a, a distant star system, we might actually be able to see some sort of indication eventually, something like an oxygen atmosphere. Uh, we might be able to detect that at some point. But what we're really talking about is intelligent life, which is presumably a subset of life itself. And uh, but what we're saying is that is what seems to be, you know, vanishingly rare, disappears. There's some reason we're not seeing like when we look at the universe as a whole, we don't see what look to be artificial things, uh, nor. But even more important, they should be able to spread. It wouldn't just be artificial things in one place. Uh you know, at these slow rates of uh, of travel, say 1% of the speed of light, the galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. Uh, it would take 10 million years. Right, which is nothing, you know, compared to... The, the universe is much older, 
I mean, at least the galaxy is much older than it is big in that sense. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Although there's, you were talking about knowing more about this, and you quite likely do, but there's one aspect of it which I probably know more about, which is uh, uh, classic science fiction talking about <laughs> it. But, hey, I'll tell you, almost every idea I've seen was probably there first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is certainly a staple of, of science fiction. So uh, so the possible causes of the Fermi paradox, um, one could be that it's very hard for intelligent life to develop. Maybe there is, as you said, there's a lot of moss out there, maybe a lot of rats, but there aren't a lot of intelligences capable of you know, building spaceships. And there's actually... A, that's probably not it, and we have that from evidence of independently developing intelligence. So if you take, you know, humans, octopuses, and crows, our common ancestor was really dumb. So at least whatever intelligence you need to get to the octopus or crow can't be that rare, because that kind of intelligence is developed at least three times on Earth independently. Uh it's also still possible that life itself is rare. We don't know. Oh, that's another uh, possible. Yeah, that. That's an earlier uh, possibility. Right. So something uh, else is right, that the, you know, basic life is really hard to develop. And that we, we don't, yes, we, we really don't know for sure. Um, we, you know, we have, you know, we have notions about the or, origin of life that I think are not ridiculous, but nobody has any real, you know, they're not sure at all about the validity of any of those notions. Now, talking about the further evolution of life, that we know a lot about. Uh, and there are all sorts of things, for example, that people have talked about as a great barrier, which we in fact know happens rather easily, like multicellular life. Uh, you can, if you want to, uh, take certain kinds of single-celled organisms and put them in a situation that sort of favors certain kinds of clustering, and you'll, you can evolve it in a, you know, in the, in a, in the test tube in a year. It's not, super unlikely to have things like that happen. But it may be that there are other steps that are difficult. Now, intelligence itself, uh, I mean, certainly if we get up to, uh, uh, you know, moderately complex multicellular life, certain degrees of intelligence have arisen more than once Mm -hmm. uh, independently. That's certainly true. Uh, I mean, my guess is intelligence is really useful. Evolution would often push that. If you think of intelligence as the ability to solve problems, the ability to understand what's going on. Or the ability to convince yourself of really elaborate nonsense, well, uh, for example. Well, that's an unfortunate side effect. But, you know, being a little bit smart, I mean, we're, you know, we became the dominant predator on the planet uh, much, you know, a long time ago. And that was obviously quite useful for us spreading um, our genes. At the very least, we had to be able, you know, to, you know, that is an interesting, by the way, you can't imagine intelligent organisms that were not the dominant predator on their planet, but we, we were before we were, uh, you know, t- terribly intelligent. We had tools. We also probably had, uh, some form of clothing as much as a couple of million years ago because Homo erectus spread into places as far north as, let's say, Peking and, it gets pretty cold in the, maybe even colder back during the ice age. Uh, but people managed this. The only places people did not, uh, go to that early was, was basically Australia and the New World. But all of, over Europe, Asia, and Africa, you know, people were, uh, 
pretty successful. Uh, I don't actually know how dominant they were. They didn't cause, they didn't wipe out a lot of other things. You know, they weren't overwhelmingly uh, uh, dominant, but they certainly did all right. Yes. Now, I should say there is a recent paper that's claiming the Fermi paradox isn't that paradoxical. And what this paper does is it goes through all the elements of the Drake equation. The Drake equation is like what, everything that has to come together for you know intel, intelligent civilization to develop. And it says it's not like you know extraordinarily unlikely that we would be alone in the visible universe. And I think that result is dominated by the possibility that one of the many steps that you need is really unlikely. Uh so, as I said, we don't know about some of them. We don't know about uh, I mean, the one that is most important or general would be the origin of life itself. There may be other things involving are there how likely is it to survive certain kinds of hazards? I mean, you need to have the right kind of star, the right kind of planet, the right kind of planet at the right distance from the star. You need to have um, uh, Probably other things about the solar system, you may need a large planet like Jupiter in order to uh, have some of the right long-term effects in terms of uh, uh, sweeping out uh, uh, things like asteroids so there's not as many left to hit a habitable planet. Uh, you know, there's a number of requirements, and we, we understand some of them, probably not all of them. Maybe some of them are more difficult than we think, or even one of them. But uh, so far, there isn't any requirement that's just extraordinarily unlikely. It's like if we had a binary star system and we happened to be in the one in a trillion orbit where it was stable for life, we could say, yeah, that's probably the solution. But there's, there's nothing where we can point to and say, God, it's really weird in our solar system that we have this. And that re weird thing is required for a civilization. Well, we probably, but we have learned more about planets of other stars through, in, you know, through we now have methods of detecting, in rare cases, observing planets of other stars. Uh, one method is, uh, for example, if you have a large planet and it's in close, the star, uh, you know, the star orbits around the center of gravity, which is not exactly the same as the center of the star. So the star wobbles a little bit. At times, it's moving a little more towards us, and other times a little less. And uh, accurate spectroscopy can, can measure these Doppler shifts, and then you can project what the uh, what was causing it uh now that works best when you have a large planet in close which we wouldn't have thought was common but we found quite a few of them now solar systems like you know they talk about hot jupiters solar systems like that are not very similar to ours we have found other methods of detecting things for example with some stars we we can see if a planet uh, happens to cross the disk of that star there'll be a slight decrease in the amount of light and that's another thing Again, that depends on the planet being at the right angle, you know, basically between us and the surface of that star. But we've detected some, uh, although, again, that more easily detects large planets. Most of these methods seem to be good at detecting solar systems that aren't very similar to ours. And they have detected lots and lots of ones that aren't very similar to ours. And people aren't actually sure that there are very many that are similar to ours. So but then again, because part of it, it's like, you know, you, you look for your keys under the light because that's where they'd be easy to see. Uh, if you did have a planet that was similar to ours, you might be able to detect it with refinements of these or some different techniques. But they found an awful lot of solar systems that are screwy looking by compared to our theories uh, in terms of large planets that are 
close to the stars, which we hadn't really expected would be the case. Uh, uh, but I think it's still, you know, it's still hard to say. Uh, I mean, how uh, it may well be that our solar system is atypical, but I don't think we're t- to the point, although I'm not an expert on this, of knowing is it, you know, tremendously atypical. Yeah, which there's is, one in a trillion level of atypical. I mean, if it was one in a hundred, that probably wouldn't matter much for this sort of argument. Uh, I don't think we know, but we're we're starting to know more. Uh, so, uh, but uh, but yeah, it is a big universe, and you know, when we look for things like we can imagine things that could be built, particularly with self-replicating. Uh, once you had a self-replicating tool or probe, that whole galaxies would look different. Galaxies would look, it would be like the difference between, uh, you know, a farm and a jungle. People, you know, aliens would be using resources to do something. Yeah, we have not that, seen any sign of that. No, that's a really important point. I mean, if if our understanding of physics is correct, there's a limited amount of free energy in the universe, which you need to do anything. And, you know, when two black holes hit each other, they use up a whole bunch of free energy. So you would think any advanced civilization would be, you know, making the universe run a bit differently, you know, so it would be saving resources or not having them being wasted. And that's not what's happening. The simplest one is that a star, like the, the sun produces a lot of light. Some of it falls on the earth, but not very much of it. About one two billionth of the sun's output falls on the earth. And we only and we only very inefficiently harvest that, although we are trying to get better at it. But I hear people saying, well, you know, solar power is limited. You can only even if we did a good job, you can only get so much out of it. And I point out that we have all the rest of the space around the sun. And that extra factor of two billion in your pocket is actually kind of useful. Yeah, uh, you'd ah. think aliens would be sending out self-replicating probes that would go and find Mercury-like planets, you know, disassemble them and put around giant Dyson spheres around suns, capture the energy and save it for later. And they're or do things of some sort with right. it. Right, and yeah. we would that would be observable to us. We don't see that, and that's that's kind of weird. I mean, life really wants to, you know, you, you leave a bunch of food out and, the, you know, the rats or ants will eat it all quickly. That should kind of apply to the whole universe, and it, well, it doesn't. It, logically, it should, although there are people who aren't very logical. Uh, uh, for example, people have said, well, maybe, you know, none of these other potential civilizations ever want to explore the universe. The answer is, if even a few do, those are the ones that spread be- and that and that become, you know, become common uh uh so it's it's you know even if only some of them are interested in doing big things only some of them are interested in heart in controlling large amounts of energy they end up as the most important ones and the most widespread right. ones also uh, for reasons of self-defense you're going to want to grab those resources i mean think if like the mongols became that you know they're the ones who started exploring the universe you were a neighbor you that wouldn't go well for you you should uh, Take into Probably the, not. <laughs> you should, even if you're peaceful, you should be like, well, what if the civilization in this other galaxy, they're the Mongols. Let's grab as much stuff as we can now in case we have to fight. But what if there is a long-term tendency for, uh, and, you know, not even just foolish, but anti-rational and anti-survival mm-hmm. uh, ideologies to, for some mysterious reason, become common as they are today uh, in the world <laughs> we live in? Uh where, uh, I mean, like one mechanism, roughly speaking, is that, you know, you can show that you're more dedicated to side X by endorsing ever more 
I mean, anyone might say something sensible. There could be practical <laughs> reasons for it. Uh, but there could be reasons to say something supremely nuts uh, and for more and more people to do so as a part of a competition to see who can be the, the craziest, that, as we that, have seen recently. That doesn't seem powerful stable. enough to stop 99% of you know our, our future histories. I well, mean, let's hope not. Yes. Uh, I, or I can't hope agree. so if it's – you know, the but, although there are other suggestions that have been made, such that uh, uh, various forms of entertainment or virtual realities become more popular and suck everybody into it because it's much more fun than real life. Yes, so the sex bot video games eventually consume all the resources. But even then, you'd run, you'd eventually realize, oh God, we're going to run out of energy and we won't have our sex bots anymore. Let's capture the resources of the nearby galaxies so we can get our sex bots to work a lot longer. Your sex spots. But at any rate, the uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the point is there's always useful things to do. Right. Uh, and that's but, uh, that's not happening. And, and the other thing is if it's hard to believe that, you know, like if you have even if you do have moments of or uh, trends of uh, contagious irrationality, uh, as long as there are a few people who don't or a few societies that don't go along with that. You know, for example, if they have a conflict, the, you know, supremely irrational ones pretty likely to lose. Uh, uh, and so there's a, you know, you know, uh, that's one thing, you know, an argument. It's entirely possible that crazy people would systematically win, but not in practical contests. Yes. And, you know, rockets are useful in the military. I mean, you know, the, the people who can create you know, the civilizations that have people like Elon Musk, they're going to win a conflict with civilizations of can't come close to that because they're too or they crazy. Or that don't believe in doing it or something. Right. Yeah, that's it. You'd think. Uh, uh, so, you know, there's something to look forward to there, uh, uh, which is, you know, when somebody who's not, who's at least considerably less crazy uh, defeats the people who are working hard at being as crazy as possible. So, yeah, that, that might, that might be okay. But we still have this problem is something. I mean, either there's something difficult about the, uh, the development of life or the developing favorable environments for life that, or or that life itself – like you could make a general argument that uh, our ability to do big things as an intelligent species has grown faster than our common sense. In fact, I don't actually see a whole lot of sign that our common sense has grown at all. I mean that our, our abilities to wield large amounts of energy may have grown and may continue to grow more rapidly than our wisdom See, using it. I, I don't agree with that because I look at markets and markets are very good at doing very complex organizations. And we have, you know, markets are better now than ever. They're allowing far more complicated structures and supply chains than have ever existed. And, you know, there's, there's no reason to think that would stop absent some, you know, global catastrophe, which might certainly happen. But there's at least a 1% chance that it won't. And, you know, I have no reason to believe that markets are the solution to existential questions. I'd have no reason to believe that we have on the whole become more, you know, sensible in a long-term sense. I would, that's another conversation, but I guarantee we have it. I guarantee um, it. I don't know. Part of being sensible is being able to go on Amazon and get really cheap products or civilization can do that. That's impressive. Another even more important part is bothering to have children, uh, which increasingly lots of people don't, including the people who most need to. 
But, so, no, yeah. you lose. <laughs> no, but the, the Amish and Hasidic Jews are having enough kids. They'll eventually populate the whole world. We hope. No one else we, does. And, they'll... and if, if nobody else has hydrogen bombs or anything except that they yeah. do. Yes. <sighs> that, that's, again, yeah, that is a separate issue. Now, Robin Hansen has a termed the great filter, whatever stops stars from giving birth to civilizations that go on and make their presence known. Lasting civilizations. Yes. Yes. And the danger is that the great filter is something we haven't encountered yet. So if it turns out it's really hard for simple life to develop on planets, that's great news for us because we did that. If it turns out, oh, no, no, civilizations like yours are extraordinarily common. They just never go on to colonize too much. We're in deep trouble because it seems like in the next thousand years, we're going to, you know, start expanding, sending out probes, sending out messages. And it, you know, so if there is some great filter we haven't hit yet, we probably aren't going to make it another thousand years. I've, I've heard that argument. Uh, I've seen a little of what he had to say. Of course, one thing to remember about Hansen is that he is, of course, crazy. Oh, I, uh, I don't agree. I, I have a high opinion of his intellectual work and of him. Uh, when somebody thinks can be made to believe without much torture that uh, being, you know, that acting drunk is something people do because it's expected, as opposed to the <laughs> fact that they're actually just drunk. It is, at the very least, it argues for a limited life okay. experience. Hansen has made like thousands of observations, so you, you and a surprisingly a high fraction are one that nobody in his right mind would say because they were wrong. Well, I, I do think this great filter argument makes a lot of sense. And oh, I like it, but I'm just saying, uh, I have this general <laughs> mild suspicion of complex arguments made by crazy people. Okay, but I, that I, doesn't I, mean they can't be right. right well, they for can. the record, I do not think he is crazy. I, I have a lot of respect for him. But what... I didn't does, say I didn't have respect for him. I okay, just that's, that's true. Okay, so what, sca what scares me the most is kind of an anthropic argument. So let's imagine that, you know, we are almost alone in the universe. and Which that would be good, by right, the way. Very, yes. And things go well. We succeed, and in the next thousand years, we start to colonize more of our galaxy. Then we go on to colonize, you know, the visible universe, and you know, that, you know, the good case option. That makes the two of us literally of extraordinary importance because once we've colonized enough worlds, you know, assuming the speed of light is the limit, we'll be beyond any local disaster, and there's almost certainly nothing that's going to stop us from surviving to the end of the universe. But right now, we happen to exist in the short period in which we're capable of destroying ourselves. So, or for that matter, even a natural accident. Right. That the Earth is a, uh, the Earth is a, is not, it's it's not totally safe. So for all the I don't know a trillion raised to the ten sentient beings that will ever exist, we're in the top million easily. I mean, both of us have talked to people who've talked to the president of the United States. We are improbably. Scary. We are improbably important because we happen to exist at this critical time. And if you have a theory which holds you not just one in a trillion important, but one in a trillion squared important, you should think there's something wrong with that theory. Well, and, so this particular conversation is even more important. Or yes, that's true. Important. How are we? We're one of the few people who are discussing existential risk compared to everyone who existed, who existed at a time where everything could go down. Oh, I, I, I want to make a point. I was reading up a little on this, and although Fermi 
and his associates who, by the way, supposedly instantly understood what he was getting at, but they were, by the way, pretty sharp cookies. Uh, but there, the first person who may have thought this was at least somewhat earlier. I'm not sure I know about the very first, but Sialkovsky talked about this in the 30s. Sialkovsky is one of the guys who first figured out that using practical fuels and, and, and you know, liquid fuel rockets, it would be possible to reach the planets. Uh, and he's also the author of a very nice phrase, you know, the earth is the cradle of mankind, but one does not stay in the cradle forever. Uh, Sialkovsky, who I think was something like a Russian high school teacher or something, but, but in the 30s, and by the way, this takes presidents of mind because other people were busy noticing, you know, people being shot in the back of the head. But he's looking at the big picture, uh, you know, in Russia in the 30s. Uh, he was thinking that, well, he thought, where is everybody? Why aren't there many advanced races? Uh, and I believe he thought that uh, somehow we were we, we were in something like a zoo or a reservation. Yeah, that that is a possibility. The other possibilities are – I just want to give credit because he talked about this earlier than Fermi. Not that Fermi's not a great guy. Yeah, but the other possibilities are first that we're not rare. There's lots of civilizations at our stage and something gets them before they can make their presence known. Or that we are extremely rare but we're – this is a computer simulation, which makes a lot of sense, right? Assuming – I have – one, Thoughts of both of those. Okay. Well, assume one planet, you know, gives birth to a, a universal civilization. You can imagine lots of people will be studying the critical time, running simulations of it. And so if we're that important, we should update the chance that this is a historical simulation. Well, here, here's uh, – on, on the first thought, uh, uh, or one thing related to it, is that uh, one idea I've toyed with is that uh, – Evolving intelligence, and again, thinking of things like the mimic octopus, thinking of cal- new, the crows of New Caledonia, which seem to be the smartest of all the birds, etc. It may have not – I think the key thing is probably getting in some sort of feedback loop in which you have to keep – there's an advantage to being smarter than the other members of your species. One that – so you keep – you know, the whole species average keeps moving up. And – uh Oh, one one fun thought I had, which I don't take too seriously, is that this is actually the cause of the great extinctions at at multiple times in the past on Earth. Some intelligent uh, species has developed; its capabilities grew faster than its uh, sanity, and then uh, so and then you know they were powerful enough to wipe themselves and most and some large fraction of everything else on earth out so there was some intelligent creature of some sort near the near the cretaceous extinction and a different intelligent creature near the perm even more intelligent judging from how destructive it was from the permo triassic extinction mm-hmm. and, and so forth actually and, and robin hansen is in, in support of that idea suggested we should look for artifacts on the moon of past human civilizations because that's that's where they would past, be. Past non-human civilizations. Oh yeah, sorry. Past Earth civilizations. Like if the dinosaurs, you know, got advanced for a few hundred years, they probably would have put something on. There's a decent chance they could have put something on the moon that would still be there. Where moth and rust do not corrupt. I have, in fact, a long, elaborate, half-written novel on exactly that theme. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and. On the back of the moon, of course, because you know you got to make it a little more obscure. The, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's not ridiculous to. I mean, this, if you think that there's no great 
problem with evolving intelligence, and it's not obvious to me that there would have to be, uh, then um, it may have happened already. I mean, like, what's one planet we know that has Earth-like conditions? Earth. Uh, so and uh, uh, so that that is that might be worth thinking about. Although the fact that those does you know, if that was happening with uh, mass extinctions, that they were driven by intelligent life, uh, you know, in the case of the uh, Cretaceous, they had probably decided to dabble with asteroid mining. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. someone made, uh, you know, someone made a little mistake. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's an interesting possibility. Uh, but, uh but there are others. The simulation one, I think I have a new idea on this, although I mentioned it to you, that uh, it's promising, which is, you know, there have been a number of arguments that if you can simulate a world, after a while, most world experienced worlds would be simulations. Right, right. Okay. Nick Bostrom but, has mentioned that. Right. But, but another thing to think about is what are most of these simulations? What are they for? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I thought was very odd is people ask, well, most of them are like, you know, some academic guy running a simulation, uh, you know, studying something. I said, no, no, that most simulations are games. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, and there there's a fairly simple explanation for the Fermi paradox, which it uh, if this world, you know, all the worlds of play, uh, the uh, uh, it would mean that uh, or rather it would imply, I think, that if, if we're in a game. There would be other intelligent races, but we haven't met them yet because we're still early in the game, and they are not much more advanced than us because it, the play, the game would be unbalanced if they were. That makes sense. Star Trek wouldn't be as fun if the Klingons were much more advanced or much more primitive than us. They kind of we this have is to have a, a fair theme. fight. It's yeah. a common theme in science fiction, and uh, in which uh, if, even if somebody is vastly advanced, somehow they've been they've failed or been destroyed or something because mm-hmm. you need to have some sort, you know, you need it. So the other major players are at your level yeah. because what the game wouldn't be any, you know, if they, if we ran into other races and all they were was cavemen and not even very smart cavemen, how, how would that be interesting? Uh, the, and similarly, if they were vastly advanced over us in ways that had taken, you know, it would take us million years to catch up. Assuming they let us, which they wouldn't, uh, uh, very few stories are written like that because they're depressing and boring. So, I mean, and people don't write games like that. So you would have games in which there are a number of other races. Somehow they're all, even though the universe is billions of years old, their civilization is only thousands of years old. Uh, the race as a whole is only a million or so old. Uh, they're at almost exactly our technical level, and even if they're ahead of us in one thing, they're bound to be behind us in something else, yeah. uh, just to be fair. No, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. If this is a simulation designed for entertainment, it might explain our politics a little bit. It, uh, think about it. Uh, 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 it would explain a lot of things. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, if you think of the world as you know, part, some parts of it are actually sitcoms and stuff. You know, much is now explained, but uh, but it has other implications. It means that fast and light travel is possible. Oh yeah, that's true. It'll make because it would be boring. It would be boring if you guys you know took forever to even run into each other. Uh, that would be an interesting pitch to a venture capitalist. Like, I'm going to develop, you know, faster than light travel, and they'll say it violates the laws of physics. Yeah, well, probably not, because I think this is a computer simulation, and if it is, it's for entertainment, and so it's more likely. 
cloud. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, or go to NASA be, with a proposal. For I something. think I'd rather talk to uh, uh, you know somebody like Peter Thiel about this because I at least at least he'd understand it. I don't know if the NASA people. I think it would bother them. Uh, but uh, you have to yeah worry about perception. But there's so. but there the point is this answers as far as I can tell all of the questions that are mystifying people about that. And he says, you know, what about filters? I said, well, they were set so we get here. I mean, there are the only filters that exist are ones that were built by the game builder. Uh, and they're, and in fact, habitable planets will be at least moderately common because what would be the point of having a big galaxy if it wasn't full of thing, places you could go and do interesting things? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we need a general theory of entertainment to, to say this would be something that all creatures would want. That it's not just a peculiarity of us that we we like that kind of thing. We like to, no, but this is our our best start. I mean, we, we you know, or you know, the, here's an analogy. It used to be the case that uh, um, many major innovations in electronics were driven by military uh, needs. I mean, certainly true back in World War II and so forth. Uh, it was true with uh, using chips as opposed to tubes. People, the big the first big market for that, uh, I mean, I should say integrated circuits as opposed to separate transistors, was uh, uh, Minuteman guidance systems. They were willing to pay what it took because they wanted something small and very reliable. And once they got those orders, you know, the price, you know, the technology improved, the prices started coming down and people started using it for other things. But it was originally uh, boosted by military contracting. But that became less true over time. It got to the point by about 1980 that more and more COTS, you know, civilian off-the-shelf technology, was getting to be, in many ways, except for very specialized applications, it was superior to, uh, 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 you know, mil- you know, the sort of uh, electronics that was being ordered and developed uh, for the military-industrial complex. They even had a special effort to try to catch up. Now, the fundamental reasons were that you could have much larger production runs if you were producing something civilian, right. so you could which meant eventually you were making more money and you could afford to put more engineering into it. And, and also markets when you're, you know, firms are competing to stuff, sell stuff to consumers, you'll get better incentives than when they're competing the markets, to sell stuff to the government. The markets were smarter. I mean, for example, you got to the point where uh, somebody in the army said, we want a rugged uh, laptop that we could carry out and, you know, it could take a certain amount of shaking and being beaten up and still work. And, and we have a spec for it. And, they, and another company said, well, we actually have one. How did you find out? Well, we sold it. We saw what worked. We we didn't have the spec written by somebody who doesn't isn't really a top notch engineer. We also interacted with customers who have real life problems, and we have you know the one that's built to your spec is not nearly as reliable as the one that we're selling to the oil geologists. Okay, or to the parents uh, with the eight year old who. Yes. The other other example is that, you know, supercomputers were the fastest ones in the world were once built for the for the military industrial complex. Things like a Cray built by Seymour Cray and the control data machines before that also designed by Seymour Cray. But you got to the point after a while and said, couldn't we just hook up a whole lot of processors on PCs? I said, because a lot of engineering money has gone into them and they're cheap. And we'll have a lot of them. And then after that, says, no, there's something even better. We'll hook up a lot of graphics processing units that have tremendous amounts of computing ability, although kind of inflexible. But what, who drove that? Gamers. 
Yes. Gamers drove the current, you know, the current type of supercomputer is largely a byproduct of the lust of gamers. Well, uh, that's true. But going back to the Fermi paradox, we'd have to assume that that wanting to play video games. That's why the world is... is so slick. That's why we have all these complicated things. That's why we have, you know, stars that have all sorts of complicated nuclear reactions. Uh, you know, why the laws of physics are exquisitely balanced to make every to make the game work. That could be. Um, another possibility that I've read is that let's imagine that the true state of the universe is civilizations are very rare. So it's not surprising that you wouldn't run into another one until after you've been spacefaring for a few billion years. Then you'd be really interested in knowing what other civilizations would develop. So you'd run a huge number of simulations of, you know, early civilizations to see what the psychology and goals are of the ones that emerge. Um. Uh, a related concept I saw, I've seen mentioned and thought about myself is that if the world is a simulation, maybe there are limited com computational resources. And uh, one version of this I saw recently says civilizations more sophisticated than us who understand the basic nature of the world, they try not to get too big because they figure it'll, everything will crash. Yeah, no, that that's true. We don't want to impose too much a burden on the people simulating us. Or, but... or, or similarly, I had a, a friend of mine uh, for a long time was working on a very sophisticated telescope in Hawaii, mm -hmm. uh, which would, of course, allow us to I mean, like one way you, you save on a simulation is you only calculate things when people are looking at them. Yeah, so, that so distant galaxies don't have to have complicated things happening in them until we build this telescope. Yeah, so your friend is imposing a uh, so the reality on no, us. The demonstrators think that they're doing this because you know of traditional Hawaiian reasons or because of sympathy. Oh yeah, that's that's right. It's, they're trying to. They think that, it. but the real reason is is the you know <laughs> the the powers behind the, the you know the surface of reality are saying, look, you know we don't want to have to you know, run all those extra galaxies <laughs> and everything. Just 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 screw, let's just screw this telescope up. But you know it, it's you know. It's the same principle as, as in graphics where you, you draw, put the details where, where people can see them. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, if we, we, we turn to the other, what I think is plausible explanation that something gets civilizations like ours, an analogy is when we first created the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project, they were worried that it might ignite the atmosphere and destroy the Earth. And they did calculations and they found that it wouldn't. But imagine that it would really have, but only for reasons that you don't understand until you solve string theory. That could be the cause of the Fermi paradox, because most civilizations are probably going to play with atomic power. And if it turns out that, you know, creating atomic power destroys your whole planet, but for or reasons or, you don't figure any, out until long after you have the ability to create it, that would be a trap. That. Sorry. Or any new thing that any new thing that might have some sort of strange and unpredictable cosmic uh, right. negative side effect. Right. Uh, I think an implication of the Fermi paradox is that we should be more afraid of that. And there's some hints. It can't be something that destroys a galaxy, or we would see evidence of it. So well, no, that, it can be. It just has to spread at the speed of light. Um. Well. Yeah. The first. The we, first. The first hint you see is the last thing you ever uh, see. No, no, actually, the reason that's not true is because then we exist at a surprisingly late period in the universe. If, we're lucky. Well, I mean, but then, yeah. then we're going into low probabilities again. So well, that's I mean, less likely are, given our, our, our history. We, our, given where we, we don't are, know maybe. everything about it, 
but it does seem that uh, some of the conditions for life are less favorable early in the history of the universe. You need things like uh, heavy heavier elements need to get made. Uh, it, I mean, if you had a, you had a star in a solar system from uh, you know from let's say the first three or four billion years of the, of this universe, it might be short on the heavy elements that you need. Uh, there might still be too much activity in terms of other very large, very bright stars in the vicinity going supernova. I can't work all these numbers in my head, but there are possible reasons that uh, there that there may be parts of time, although, mind you, they're not terribly narrow parts of time. I mean, obviously, it's at least been okay for us for the past several hundred million years minimum because that's how long complex life is known to have existed on Earth. But, uh, you know, things like, uh, uh, you know, gamma ray bursters in the vicinity – uh, I remember one uh, uh, one thing that can happen sometimes is you can by gravitational interactions you can have a star flung completely out of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once if you had an Earth, and that doesn't mean that any particular difficult stress or anything has happened to that star or the planets. You know they don't get broken up by this or anything. So if you th- threw a star out of the galaxy, so at this point it's now like a hundred thousand light years out. Uh, that star is safer in a number of ways because nobody's close. No right. other stars are close. It might not be a bad place for life to evolve, but it is a hard place to start a space program. Yeah. See, you know, since you, you could per- perhaps go to other planets of the same star, but the next step is, is a doozy. Uh, Although, so, I don't know. I mean, in terms of like 100 years, yeah, but in terms of a million years, it's probably not that big a deal. Well, I mean, many people I know – would have more trouble putting a lot of money into a project that doesn't have a payoff for a million years than they would. I mean, it's hard enough for a hundred years, but you could always send out messages though. uh, Possibly. But, but the thing is, this might be an unusually favorable place for life to evolve. Yeah, no, no, definitely. So yeah. And I, I think we should really use the Fermi paradox to, to look for existential risks, to look for the kind of things that would get most civilization. So if we're going to start something, we should say, you know, is there something is could there be some weird quirk of physics that would cause us to destroy the planet? And it gets worse if we think, is this something we think most high tech civilizations would want to do? Well, there is a there is one approach that would decrease the risk. What you do is you uh, you'd start a colony, um, maybe first on Mars, but much better on on something around Alpha Centauri, not even necessarily Earth-like, you know, a place where you could build a base, and you do your most interesting experiments at a distance. I mean, maybe that isn't enough a distance for every possible thing you could imagine, but a lot of things that like merely blew up the planet or destroyed the solar right. system, we would be far enough away to say, well, I guess we better not do that anymore. Right. Although the one aspect, the reason that's scary is once we've gotten to Alpha Centauri, right? That's we probably passed the Great Filter, so that means. If you could predict, well, five years from now, we'll have a colony, you know, way away from Earth that could repopulate and rebuild civilization. You'd say, wait, probably the Great Filter will hit us in the next five years. Or there's a much higher chance of us dying in Actually, the next five it would, years. It would probably mean that they're probably – I mean, unless the filter is something active, like aliens go out and stomp you whenever you start to get too advanced, mm-hmm. probably would mean you were going to be okay. Because, or there's you know, something in the journey. You know, there's something that we have to do. Some weird combination of chemicals or something, you know, drive. I don't know. But 
it's, I don't know. But yeah. I think that, uh, uh, you know, the idea of having a distant place to do things that might be dangerous is not ridiculous. No, and just uh, having that distance place means you're, you're safer in a weird probability way because you would say, you know, the thing that would likely – if we do this experiment, it probably – you know, we're safer in every way because we're much more likely to have been past the great filter. The, you know, the... Well, the, you know, I think the one a lot of I've seen people mention a number of times is the idea that the vacuum may be uh, a metastable state, that there are lower energy vacuums. And if you made the wrong high energy physics mistake, you'll mm -hmm. start having a, a wave of expansion that makes everything that we know disappear uh, that it, that expands at the speed of light which would be you know that'd be bad probably but, but that uh, can't be the great because that's that would that you know an alien civilization couldn't expand faster than that assuming no faster than light travel so no, but it could be because the point is we wouldn't know it was happening to somebody else because the first sign we'd see would be us disintegrating mm -hmm. i mean every, what it does is destroys your light cone Oh, oh, right. But an alien can't expand faster than its light cone. So the fact that we don't. The fact no, that but the point is, if this is, is. Go ahead. Yeah, the fact that we still exist is just as surprising them that the fact that we don't see it. Well, alien. it could be we're, we're just on the edge of making this discovery. So okay. the first argument this would make is well, see, this is an argument for building moderately low tech probes to go to Alpha Centauri instead of doing high energy physics at CERN. Yeah. Like we're reasonably sure that you know sending a nuclear rocket of some kind would not cause the universe to disappear because we set off nuclear weapons before and it didn't destroy the universe. Uh, but you know the next experiment at a higher energy, although again it's, it's really the case that everything that we do in an accelerator, something that happens occasionally in nature, only maybe not very often, there are extremely energetic events uh, in nature. And we're not doing things that have never happened before. It might be interesting if we got to the point at some point where we are doing things that have never happened before. But that is not the case recently. Yes. Uh, or should, yet. Yes, and we certainly should be – I think we should be scared of doing that. So a weird implication of the Great Filter is the worst news almost we could possibly get was be discovering life – on another planet or another solar system that arose independent of life on our planet because that Un meant – Unintelligent life. Any type of life. I mean the, the higher up it is, if it was a dead civilization we saw around another star, that would be the worst. But that just pushes up where the great filter is likely to be. I'm, I'm just saying if we saw a live civilization, it maybe means that oh, there really is something. Yeah, that, that would be, would be a positive thing. We'd have to ask Except live, for the fact but... that they would probably be an irresistible enemy. But yeah. uh, in, a, in, a, in the larger sense, it would be a, a positive thing. Yeah, but if we detected life around a very distant planet and it, it developed independently of life here, that would be very bad news because that would push up where the great filter is. That would suggest life is maybe common, and but intelligent life or successful intelligent life is not, and right. that would be sort of ominous. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think we should do a massive program to look for the remains of dead civilizations because if it is true that the cause of the Fermi paradox is something happens to civilizations, they might leave remnants. And that could give us a lot of clues as to what got them. Although, you know, those remnants might also include hints to the technology they used to destroy themselves. And uh, That's true. They should be classified top secret and, you know, make sure – We have to keep them at bright path and, you know, they – Along with the dead aliens and everything. Right, uh, right. But so by all the those way, alien conspiracy the first, things things that, the first yeah. place you would look for non-human advanced technology should be the Earth. A, because oh, yeah, it's, it's easier, 
And it's not totally impossible there were uh, at least, you know, I mean, all you would need to do is have a civilization like like can we think of ways that of mistakes we could make that would totally wipe out the human race? The answer is probably. And if so, there might have been other intelligent species that got up to, say, roughly our level mm-hmm. and then they made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, or perhaps several mistakes. Uh, 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 so uh, that would be interesting. Uh and again, the moon is not a bad place because, you know, that's a place where if you left some um, like here, if you had remnants of civilization, I mean, hey, it's been a long time. Most sorts of technology you can imagine would not probably work very well after being buried underground for 70 million years or longer. Mm-hmm. And um, but if they were like simply lying in a, in a cave on the moon, there are certainly caves on the moon that probably haven't had anything happen to them over that period. Uh, so, you know, might be a good p- place. Uh, but, you know, the very first place you should look is the Earth because it's easy. Right. Uh, well, we effectively and, have been looking. I mean, well, but, you know, if we did find anything like that, uh, unless there was a lot, I mean, it might be interesting to think of things that would tend to exist for a very long time. But if, uh, well, I think I've told you, you know, my example, which I think is illuminating, of uh, upper atmosphere lightning. Yeah, yeah, people didn't believe it. Well, but everybody, many people saw it. There was even a theoretical prediction it should exist. Mm -hmm. But it officially didn't exist for decades. Probably from, you know, I would say it was frequently seen for sure for World War II on. Lots of people flying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it didn't become officially existing until about 92. Mm -hmm. I mean, although the number of people who saw it was probably in the hundreds of thousands, counting passengers and things. Uh, so I would guess, and you know, most professional airline pilots probably. Uh, and I've seen comments by people saying, "Oh, yeah, it's nice to be able to talk about it now." Well, could there be something else like that? You know, it, could there be that now and then you find something that doesn't make any sense? From you know, it doesn't look. It, in other words, it looks artificial at, in some in certain fossil areas or something. And the answer would be, you know, like, could that be, could people not talk about it because they know that they'll get, you know, put, you know, considered insane or or perhaps because there's even government pressure to do I said, since things like that have happened, it's not utterly impossible. Yeah, and there's I'm certainly not, a lot of people who believe they've seen weird spaceships or things flying, and some of them are, well, you know, I'm, Navy pilots. So Right now I'm just sticking to an example where it became clear. We, yeah. you know, many people said this officially; it didn't exist, and then it turned out that indeed it did exist. Uh, uh, sprites and so forth. Uh, and the point is, if it can happen once, that's at least it doesn't necessarily mean it's happened very often, but it's an existence proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means there can be moderately common phenomena, not ones you see just walking down the sidewalk, but very at least not very often, but you know they're there that have been seen a lot and officially don't exist. Uh, and there probably are others. Uh, uh, I mean, there are examples where things happen under people's noses that were of some importance that nobody noticed. I mean, uh, for example, when you had uh, uh, ulcers were being caused by bacterium, and many doctors must have inadvertently cured it when giving people antibiotics. Mm-hmm. You know that you know so ulcers were being caused by that bacterium and being cured by antibiotics, and probably the majority of all the doctors on Earth had had this happen more than once in their practice, but hardly any of them noticed it. 
Yeah, that's certainly yeah, it's certainly true. There. Uh, that's, but part of it is because they were taught in school that there weren't any germs in the stomach, and or another example, and I've talked about this before. You know, there was a time in which there was an official estimate. People had tried to count chromosomes. Mm-hmm. And it was a little complicated, and there were complicated little wormy things at the edge of your vision in the microscope, but they had made a mistake. They thought humans had 48, but mm-hmm. we don't. But many biology students took out their microscope, looked at a cell, counted them, and they got 48 because mm-hmm. that's the answer you're supposed to get. Uh, there are worse examples of that floating around right now. There are things that people know have to be true that clearly aren't. <laughs> Okay, yes, and we unfortunately have to avoid We can't some talk of those. about those, of course, but yes. we can talk about all the previous examples. Yes. So, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, it's, I think you're certainly, you're certainly right about that, that there, there might be, be evidence. There but... could be hints that are not, that people just aren't allowed to talk about, or, or, or for professional reasons don't want to talk about, or, uh, I don't, I'm not sure that there are any such things, but mm-hmm. say in geology, if there were certain things that were hints of, you know, someone, something who could do, you know, had a technology in the past. I mean, we're talking the deep past. I'm not talking about, you know, the Romans or anything. It's perhaps possible. Uh, uh, the, uh, I mean, uh, groupthink, uh, you know, believe in what you were, what the people of this era are supposed to think. It can occasionally blind you to things, some of which kind of look kind of obvious in retrospect. Uh, so, I mean, I don't actually know anything like that, uh, but, you know. Well, hurt... that wouldn't solve the Fermi paradox because we would still no, wonder but... why it didn't happen on other planets. In fact, we... it would become more paradoxical. We would know more. Yes, uh, we would. It would we... be, uh, uh, and if they kept getting destroyed, that might actually be a hint of something. Yeah. Uh, it might be our planet is moderately unusual and uh, intelligent life does destroy itself fairly effectively. Uh, but actually, by the way, that suggests there are two levels. See, one is getting intelligent life, getting advanced enough to destroy themselves. But, you know, only slightly more advanced. They don't only destroy themselves. They destroy, they destroy a significant fraction of all the living things on their planet. Yeah. Uh, so we'll call that a great extinction. I guess the next level mm-hmm. is the planet's utterly bare, uh, you know, just a cinder. And obviously we wouldn't have anything like that in our past because we wouldn't be here at all. Uh, but uh, but that's something to think about. Uh, yes. Now, as, as I've written, even if this, the solution to the Fermi paradox is that civilizations and never, you know, have always destroyed themselves. We're doomed. Well, no, see, there's a, we have a little hint, little bit of optimism, reason to be optimistic. We actually have an advantage over past civilizations, and that's actually the Fermi paradox. If you existed a billion years ago, the solution to the Fermi paradox is, oh, it's we're we're, we're, we're early. arisen, right? So the later you go in the universe to exist, you know, for civilization to arise, the more paradoxical the Fermi paradox becomes, and the more information it provides you. So we have an advantage over every civilization that arose much earlier than ours. And Much earlier, not we're not talking a million years, more like billions or significantly um, early. That could be billions. Um, that I mean, a billion is a lot. It could be a hundred million. That might be enough. The universe as a whole hasn't changed that much in the last hundred million. Well, no, I mean, we don't know that because part of the strategy I would urge is we, we you know, use a look for dead civilizations. So there's going to be a there might be a lot more of them out now than there were a hundred million years ago. There so have that, been. There have been science fiction stories in which something 
strange, miraculous, bad, but or transformative happens. That's when civilization, you know, the singularity. And mm-hmm. in some versions of this, like in some things Werner Vinge wrote, the singularity makes you, from the viewpoint of earlier civilizations, disappear. Right. By the way, it may actually make you disappear. We don't know. They're just we can't find out what happened. Uh, but uh, in his stories, in some of them, uh, they have a way of uh, stopping time. And some guys do this, and they come out, and everybody's gone, and they never do quite figure out what happened. Yeah, they're so not. That's yeah. The problem is that that's kind of like the zoo hypothesis, where they, the advanced civilizations, know we're here, and they're just ignoring us. It does seem unlikely that a huge number of people would ignore. They'd have someone would want to like help us or hurt us, impose their religion on us take our resources that's just that seems really weird that they would exactly want to leave us alone and that's not what life does life doesn't tend to want to leave other types of life alone north sentinel island which is north sentinel island is one of the andaman islands and the locals there uh correctly for the most part don't want to have anything to do with outsiders you know that place those all those islands were inhabited by a group of small dark-skinned people uh with their own Language is not closely related to that of anybody else in the world. And uh, some of them became colonies of the British and later the, of India. And mm-hmm. those people suffered not particularly as far as I know because they were oppressed, but mainly because of new diseases and exposure to other things that they dealt with very poorly, like alcohol. Mm-hmm. And But North Sentinel Island, the people there, they said, anybody who lands, we try to kill them. Mm-hmm. And – uh, you know, if people have flown over in helicopters to try to look at them, there was some concern. Were they okay after that big earthquake in that part of the world a few years back? Yeah. And apparently they – at least some of them were. They were still there to throw arrow, to throw uh, spears at the helicopter. Uh, and there have been a couple of people who were stranded there, and I believe you know, by accident, and the locals killed them. And they have not suffered from disease. They have not suffered from newly introduced tourist things because they haven't let anybody land. And the rest of the part is the authorities in the area, you know, England and Britain at various times, have let them alone. I mean, that means – it means to a certain extent enforcing – saying, don't bother these guys. I mean, because, you know, if somebody wanted to, the fact they can shoot, throw a spear, is not really what's stopping you. Right. It's – I mean – a little bit, but mostly it's that they don't seem to want it. They're one of the very few groups in the whole world that see that that see is essentially uncontact. I mean, they have had a little bit of contact. A couple of people have landed when a you know a fishing boat went astray, and then they killed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're probably. I mean, there are they've undoubtedly done better than if they had had contact. At least early contact, because they would have caught lots of diseases. Now today. It, it is actually possible to contact a tribe like that, and then you give them every shot known to man, and you can actually have them come through it fairly safely. This has happened a few times in South America. But up until recently, th- their answer of total isolation was completely correct. But the isolation was to some extent a choice that other more powerful, you know, either the British or later India, said, we're going to let them alone. We'd, we're going to make people let them alone. We feel like letting them alone. It did happen, and it's persisted for, I don't know, I'd say on the order of 100 years. Uh, mind you, it'd be surprising if it persisted forever. You'd think eventually somebody says, oh, I think I can really make money by doing something on that island. We'll build a hotel or 
use the beaches or fish there or, you know, there's um, over time, there's always a reason for somebody to see a possible profit or gain from doing this. So it's hard to see how it would last forever. But, uh, uh, you know, maybe. And by the way, you know, this also suggests that there may have been a few aliens who leaked through the barrier, you know, the quarantine around us. But we did the right thing. We shot at them. We killed them. <sighs> yes. Maybe it, ate them. Yeah, seems unlikely, but... I mean, they might have looked like, you know, deer. Uh, the mm. uh, But I, I like that idea that, uh, you know, crazed uh, people in various backward parts of the world are the ones who have, you know, completed... Uh, the zoo uh, hypothesis, because you know the few pe- the few aliens that broke the rules that came here, you know we had them for dinner. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that certainly. Yeah. But the point is that, but it means the whole universe is like that still. By the way, there is another theory which I've seen also in science fiction, although uh, other people have talked about it recently, in which the you know the world outside are areas we have immediately explored. In other words, past Pluto. Mm-hmm. It's a simulacrum. That's not what the universe really looks like. It's, you know, the universe is full of superhighways and, you know, artificial objects and so forth. But they have put a uh, fake, uh, uh, you know, the stars we see are not real, etc. Uh, yeah, that's the, again, the zero we're, hypothesis. We're inside, or, or it's a particular subvariant. We're inside a planetarium. Or, and I've seen that used in science fiction. Yeah. Well, that's the same as this being a simulation. I mean, there's not an effective difference. Uh, well, it might be there's a way to sneak past it. In that case, it's to the real world, which is not a simulation. But, but it's it's similar. You could get out of a simulation, you could imagine. Maybe. But, and I've read three or four stories on that, too. Yes, so have I. Uh, so I have a weird theory, a, a proposal, for how we can at least know that we've gotten past the great filter, or at least with high probability. And that's the, – the, the Fermi paradox is not we haven't seen aliens, but we haven't noticed them. And what if there are effects? Yes. What if we create a whole bunch of satellites and they're very long lived satellites that could outlive us if we destroy the earth and they're designed to just continually transmit your various messages to the stars. Once we've put those satellites in place, it's likely that we have left a trace that a civilization in our galaxy or something would, would eventually find evidence of us. So this might be a way of getting past the great filter. If we like make huge amounts of noise and we set things up so even if we die, we'll make huge amounts of noise, then we'll have gotten past whatever keeps civilizations from making noise. The point is you can think of similar efforts to probe a number of different hypotheses involved in, in, as, part, as attempts at explaining the Fermi paradox. For example, my hypothesis that it's all a game I think there's a bunch of things you could do to test that. I mean, for one thing, you could throw a bunch of money at some a bunch of crazy people who said that they could build a, a star drive, and it would be very likely that one of them would be right, <laughs> because yeah. it needs to be right in order to make the game move along. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we could even we even find that for some reason, hiring a guy named Zephram Cochran somehow <laughs> made, was particularly likely because it would be funny. It would be an Easter egg in the story. Uh, you know, references both below and above. Uh, uh, there could be uh, there could be a lot of things like that, but for different hypotheses. Now, some of them, I mean, like some of them, it's not so clear. But uh, 
But uh, and some of them, you find out things you don't want to know. Like you say, like certain theories are there are physics, unpredictable physics things that would destroy us all. So progress almost always runs into this. Right. Well, we just fund a bunch of unpredictable physics things, and then it either happens or it doesn't. Uh, but if it does happen, we, we may not even have time to write down, oh, yeah, now I understand. Uh, so, so some of these things, understanding would not – we wouldn't enjoy it that much. Well, in that case, then we, we want to not do experiments. We want to do theoretical physics and understand things and then learn where there well, could well, be more traps. We've, we've certainly moved in that direction, except it – probably ends up with lots of people using up lots of pieces of paper. Uh, and we, we have to do things that other civilizations at our stage wouldn't have done. We well, have there's to... one simple way to pick things like that. Pick something that no one in their right mind would do. Okay. You know, there's some doing things that were just totally weird. Yeah. Might no, be a I, way out of the Fermi paradox. I know. I agree. I, I give an analogy that, you know, you're going to take a test and you think first you're the only one who's ever taken it. So, you you know, you plan. Then you find out, oh, no, actually, a thousand people before you have taken it and they've all they've, failed. They've all been executed. Yeah. They're they've gone. all failed the test. That gives you useful information. You don't go to the obvious test prep books. You what try you do, weird you, things. You wipe yourself with the test. Right. I mean, it's because it was really meant to be toilet paper. Or, uh, or you do something like it's a math problem. You say, I look, I, I'm almost certain I can I'm going to write a poem about life, hoping that the teacher, this could work. Because if I just do what everyone else probably did, I take the derivatives and find first order conditions, I'm almost certainly going to fail because everyone else did. So I'll do something that normally would be crazy, but isn't because I know my otherwise odds of success are so low. And that's what we should be doing, perhaps, as a civilization. You sure we're not? We're certainly doing some moderately strange not things. Not deliberately. Who knows who's behind all this stuff? Uh, yeah, I tend yeah, to think you're right. Is there an inner party that's directing this craziness because they know what's really going on? And I don't know. Or because it's funny. Uh, like I had a theory the other day that there's – you'll have one New York Times editor says to the other, I bet you I can get them eating bugs by the summer. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a bad idea though, eating bugs. But yeah. you know they have been – there has been this press of articles, not just there, but probably originating there, explaining why we'd all – it would be really good if we all started eating bugs. You have seen a few of those, right? I think that's not a crazy thing, so I would have to say that's a good well, idea. I'm just saying, though, that the idea that it's – that people are saying, hey, I found I can get people to believe crazy things, it's a temptation to make – to do jokes with it. Yeah. Uh, I mean that would be like imagining there was somebody in the NSA that because he had this enormous – you know. Although he's not supposed to abuse it, he has this enormous ability to uh, uh, to tap into people's phone conversations. That occasionally guys would do things like they're listening to a dirty conversation between you know uh, between two famous people. That could never happen, right? <laughs> but it well, has happened. Yeah, that I think we, a lot of us would put high priorities on that having happened, though. Well, there's a lot of things like that when you it's like if you start assuming that you know. It, you know, people will do things, you know, almost perfectly according to the rules. That's actually pretty unlikely. I mean, perfectly according to the rules. See, uh, economists have it going down. We think people are acting according to their own incentives. So, well, I think you need to put in a bunch of. Uh, obviously, there is more involved because you can have mass delusions. I mean, uh, every now and then I hear about uh, an economist might say, uh, uh, you know, this is something we talked about with Brian Kaplan. I mean, like. Is it the case that, let's say, um, an exclusive, uh, hard to get into a private school uh, confers more knowledge on you 
for example, than if you had gone to somewhere else? And the answer is apparently no. Right, right. Uh, now people says, well, but there's other, you know, there must be, these people must know some reason for why they're doing it. I mean, there has to be a reason. And I said, no, there doesn't. I mean, uh, on the same argument, I've heard people say, you know, doctors used to bleed people. There must be some reason that's actually good. I said, but there isn't. It was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, there are all kinds. The only thing you know about past commonly used procedures is they weren't universally lethal. They could be bad, but you could have, you know, they can't be so bad that you didn't survive them because, you know, we're here. But mm-hmm. you, they don't actually necessarily been, they doesn't mean they were right about anything. Uh, although the boundedness means they weren't infinitely wrong. That much mm-hmm. is true. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we make, you know, a lot of mistakes, but we're, you can argue we're like the dumbest civilizations major... capable of developing civilization. Because as soon as you're smart enough to create a civilization, you do, you explode. And... Oh, we know more about that, I think. I mean, there are, psychometrics is actually useful. You can say that there are certain levels of complication that countries with certain average IQs manage and certain countries with lower don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I mean, if these things have changed over time, which we will know more about soon from looking at ancient DNA, like what if it turns out that uh, Romans were not as bright as people in Italy today? Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, if I had to bet, I'd bet that was the case. Uh, but we, I think we might be able to come up with estimates and how much that has changed over what time it has changed, things like that. And, uh, for example, it's possible – I mean, it's – it's probably it's not the only factor. You need other things. I mean, if you had suppose you had a small island with terribly intelligent people, it would still be a small island. The number of people who would have leisure to work in these problems might be three. You know, think progress would have to be slow. I mean, unless three of them were Gauss or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, so scale matters. You know, contact with other civilizations to the extent to which useful ideas have been preserved from the past matter. All sorts of things matter, but. The point is, if you're not sharp enough to do it, it's probably not going to happen. It may be that we'll be able to see things about why certain things weren't ready to happen at certain places where you'd almost think they were. Uh, you know, things of that sort. We may end up getting some more information about. Uh, there's an interesting book coming out uh, soon, very soon. I don't think it's quite coming out by Greg Clark, uh, talking about things of this sort, about, you know, Evidence for – now, his evidence is largely from uh, de- demography. But like, you know, for example, today there's some indication that smarter people have fewer kids than average, enough to shift the average gradually down over time. There almost certainly have been times in the past in which it was different, sometimes worse than now, sometimes in the opposite direction, sometimes perhaps utterly stable. Uh, and uh, But I think we're going to know more about that in the fairly near future by looking at ancient DNA trends, particularly in places like Europe where the people involved are mostly – the people there today are mostly descendants of the people there then. So you don't get into these complications of – you know some of these methods don't work very well between different groups. But if you're looking at you know mostly the same kind of people, uh, I, there's a reasonable chance that they might work. The uh, – uh, but uh, – uh, but at any rate, uh, back on the Fermi paradox, uh, your turn. Oh, uh, yeah. So I also have this idea for charity, a very weird kind of charity, where maybe there's nothing that we can do to survive, but other civilizations will arise, perhaps on Earth even. 
So maybe we should like, you know, write down everything, you know, make a copy of Wikipedia and put it on the moon and maybe like have a way of continually update it. So if we are, were destroyed, there'd be a record right up to that. Oh, right. Like the last thing we did says, well, we were playing with X. And if you don't, right. if we don't, if we don't say anything tomorrow, that was a mistake. I have seen that in science fiction <laughs> as well. Uh, 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 there was one in which, uh, and this was fairly well designed. This was a story by Jerry Pornell and Larry, Larry Niven. Uh, there's intelligent life coming to get us from a planet of Alpha Centauri. But they pick Alpha Centauri not just because it's closest, because it means these guys are more advanced than us, but minimally. You know, this is for them the shortest possible journey, which mm -hmm. means they, you know, you don't have to be a super advanced civilization to do it. So they are more advanced than us, but not enormously. Uh, and, uh, but, the, but they're, and also there, there's a sense in which their advances are kind of shaky. What it is is they were not the first intelligent species on their world. There had been an earlier one, and that earlier one had made some kind of mistakes that, you know, caused a disaster. And they went out and they put uh, uh, records, uh, you know, something like uh, big quartz boulders with, uh, you know, symbols written on them, uh, inside them by lasers, mm -hmm. something that would last. And of inc what they are is hints about how to build civilization of increasing complexity. Yeah. I mean, so you you know, whoever learns how to understand this first develops, you know, useful new technology and probably prevails. And so the new civilization, a different species than them, has relied fairly heavily on this. And they're not quite as good at coming up with ideas completely by themselves as we are. We haven't had any alternative. We haven't had, you know, magic tablets with that says, here's how you make a steam engine. They did. Uh, so that turns out to be one of their weaknesses is uh, they are not terribly good at, at – they're not as good at invention as we are. They have higher technology, but they're not very good at, at improving it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, I mean, you know, in science fiction and, of course, in any simulation worth playing, mm -hmm. aliens can't just be – infinitely advanced and step on us like bugs because that's boring if they are better at one thing they have to be worse at another they have to, or you know like uh in one of the first stories of this sort the war of the worlds uh the martians are very vulnerable you know they're more advanced than us in some ways but they're more they're very vulnerable to earth germs which i would guess was inspired by people's experiences in africa yeah i mean malaria there were, you know, before people really understood about quinine and so forth, there were all sorts of uh, uh, efforts to do things in Africa, exploring, for example. And there, there, you could have somebody was trying to find the source of the Nile, and they send out something like 40 guys in an expedition, and one guy mm -hmm. comes crawling back. And they never have gotten there. They got part way. And they're losing more and more people to illness. And, you know, those illnesses are serious for the locals, but they're not as serious. They can you know, live at a place like this. But, you know, for people who don't have any of those protective adaptations and do not yet have sufficiently advanced uh, scientific medicine, uh, you, you couldn't go there. Well, now, could that be a solution to the Fermi paradox that if the population on a planet ever gets too large, a virus or bacteria will inevitably develop that wipes everyone out. And we, we happen to have very good immune systems based on, I don't know, uh, We've had a particularly, or something. We have particularly filthy habits or something. Yeah. Uh, 
So that just happens, you know, you know, you develop agriculture, you increase your population, and eventually you get to the point where there's some virus or bacteria I doubt that it. destroys everyone. I, I really doubt it. Although, I, by the way, this is another podcast we should make and soon, uh, talking about, you know, the full implications of pandemics and things, uh, but not today. Uh, uh, I don't think so. I mean, uh, although, I mean, you take an unusual kind of pathogen to wipe out a species. It's not absolutely impossible. But what you typically need is one that infects other species. See, if it affects only one species, as mm -hmm. it kills more and more of them, then it's harder and harder for it to spread, and it tends to limit itself. It's rare for this exceptions to this. What are the exceptions? Uh, the exception we know. The example is if it hits a variety of species. So even if it is wiping out one species, it still has a place to keep, you know, it keeps leaking in from the reservoir. Other. Yeah. Yes. So uh, uh, the one example of this I know, which has wiped out a number of species of amphibians, uh, there was this uh, chytrid fungus mm -hmm. uh, that uh, was apparently spread by, you know, it, it came from somewhere. I think some people think some sort of African frog had it. Uh, a frog that was used actually worldwide in pregnancy tests. Uh, you know, you would see how the eggs responded to any, you know, anyhow, there, 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 was, there was a test that used frogs, and this thing was widely spread. Anyhow, so this pathogen, which was, there were many parts of the world where it apparently never, it's something distantly related to a fungus. But it's a pathogen, actually, no, it is a fungus now that I think of it, it, it but it's an odd one, a chytrid fungus. Uh, and the pathogen apparently did not exist in some parts of the world, like the New World, like in Australia. And mm -hmm. when it showed up, it was particularly difficult for amphibians because for them it was sort of like a communal uh, sexually transmitted disease. You know, the females would lay their eggs in some pond. Males would go. And the point is they're all exposed. It's like an orgy. Mm-hmm. Even though they're not doing anything particularly degenerate, even for frogs, but the point is they're all touching the same water. Yeah, so. Okay. And there are species of frogs, particularly ones, you know, there were some kinds of frogs that had, you know, small numbers of eggs and then put lots of very deep special care for those uh, limited number of offspring. Mm -hmm. And some of them are extinct. I mean, sent in, over the past few couple of decades because of this. There was a, a type of uh, maybe four species of frogs in Australia that did elaborate uh, things to help take care of their young and then didn't. It turns out in this situation, having a whole lot of eggs was better. At least some of them might survive by luck. Uh, there was this mouth-breeding frog in uh, Queensland that uh, actually would – I think it was the males. They would protect the eggs in their mouth and not eat them, and you know they'd be safe from other things, but there weren't very many eggs. And now, apparently, that's this fungus has spread all over the place. It's all over North and South America. It's uh, – and it has wiped out quite a few species, and other it is merely almost wiping out is a lot better. It probably means they're starting to evolve resistance. Okay, so you don't think this is? Yeah, I guess looking at other species on Earth, we'd see it's it would be unusual. Uh, I mean, right. you can have cases where you lose a lot, but to lose the whole species, right. I said it's I know a few examples okay well what about the dark forest theory where the universe is full of life but the equilibrium is to hide uh uh yeah i've seen that uh uh i've only read three or four stories said in that <laughs> so one of them was called the killing star 
we start developing moderately advanced technology. We're moving around the solar system and stuff. And one of these hidden species said, well, those idiots, you know, well, they stuck their head up. Better kill them. Yeah. And they do. Uh, the first thing we hear is, you know, projectiles coming in close to the speed of the light, destroying practically everything in the solar system. So that wasn't a terribly happy story. Uh, uh, but uh, um, maybe. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, what bothers me about that theory in terms of plausibility is that you'd think you'd want to be grabbing resources. That would probably be safer than hiding. Uh, another thing, and, you know, this is just to prove that I'm totally unpredictable. I would think that if you ran into another intelligent species, that certain kinds of cooperation might be very fruitful. I mean, maybe they thought of some things you don't. I mean, if, you know, the distance we're sort of talking about, most of the practical exchanges would be exchanges of ideas. So then you'd want to enslave them and so they make them spend the full time developing ideas for you. That would be better, right? You know, I could think of worse forms of enslavement. Yeah. I mean, that'd be like making everybody into a college professor. <laughs> I mean, a fate worse but then you, than but, death. But without sabbaticals, though, so... Uh, it would be more like a sabbatical. Remember, you're not, they're not hiring you to teach. They're hiring you to figure things out. So it would be like you're a research professor. You get to, you know, of course, I mean, maybe, you know, if you're too slow, they, you know, they, they beat you or burn you to the stake or something. But I, actually, that's an interesting idea. But I would say, but that's still not hunkering down and hiding from each other and killing everybody who sticks their head up. It, the point is, if there were even, if cooperation is ever possible, it would seem to have, big payoffs, which might mean those that cooperate would have advantages against those that don't. Uh, I, that is possible. It wouldn't surprise me if there's a limit to practical knowledge. And so at some point, it's the resources that are the constraint, not the knowing. Well, you know, th that's kind of the background thought. The question is, is there a limit to what, you know, a, after all, you know everything there is to do. And then what's the point of cooperating? Right. Uh, 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 I mean, you can always come up with more mathematical statements. There's no limit to it. But the question might be, maybe after a while, a lot of them aren't terribly useful. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's possible. Uh, uh, and, you know, unless you're you know, mathematically curious and then, you know, just looking at the next one and trying to see whether it's true or, you know, what can be done with it, you know, you might enjoy it. But the, but the key problem would be, are, are, is this kind of uh, cooperation increase your power? Does it have practical payoffs? Does it increase your uh, your ability to 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 resist trouble or to survive trouble? Uh, and you know maybe there's a uh, maybe that's all there is after a while. I don't know that. I mean that's actually relates to other questions like you know is it possible to know everything? Well, here we're being a little less abstract. Is it possible to know all the useful things there are to know? And you know maybe there's a finite set. Uh, I don't know. Uh, or even if there's just diminishing returns to doing research, could then be. you would have explored most of the areas. And the fact that other people have different types of brains in you might not matter if you're doing research. Everyone's doing research through it's, uh, you no, know, AI. It's, it's the same physical universe. Uh, right. And that's it's not like well, you're diff you, you have these different creative ideas. It's like we're using the same algorithms to generate creative ideas. You've looked at this side more than I have, but because of diminishing returns. It's, oh, you know, uh, one side issue. Uh, which I would like to attack a little bit. There are a lot of people who talk about sort of non-standard environments for life. Yeah. And a lot of what they say is probably bullshit. I mean, for example, when they talk about things like ice moons with uh, uh, liquid interiors, mm -hmm. 
Okay, the problem is there's not much free energy there. So this this is the argument for why like the moons of Saturn and Jupiter probably right. don't have life. I don't think they do because you need free energy. You know, look it up, Gibbs free energy people uh, to do anything. And when you have uh, and and you know uh, sunlight on a planetary surface is a pretty good source of one. But if you're inside, this liquid is probably at chemical equilibrium or very close. The only f energy sources in a place like you know, one of those, one of those uh, gas, the moons of a gas giant is a little radioactivity maybe and a little bit of uh, thermal energy from tidal flexing. And I don't think any of that's likely to be uh, useful at driving chemical reactions that might lead to life. I don't think there's any way to make it work. Uh, mm -hmm. But NASA keeps talking about it because NASA has to talk about something. I mean, like what are the odds we're going to find life anywhere else in the solar system? I said, not very good. Yeah. Uh, but they say, but but that's what would make people interested in sending probes. I said, yeah, but it isn't true. Uh, now, I'm not talking about other solar systems. I mean, some of them, sure, it might be. Not probably many of them, but, you know, it would be very interesting. Uh, and, and, it, and the other thing is, even if you find microbial life, which is you know, probably the more likely kind, uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it's related to ours, you know, considering it's possible for – you know, meteorites to be knocked off Mars and driven to Earth and actually vice versa, although, you know, we haven't actually found – we have to go to Mars to find those. Uh, uh, but I will say that, uh, like, what if I had reason to think there was a kind of life on Mars that was biochemically different from ours? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if it's just microbes. Uh, that would be – now, from your point of view, that's, that's worrisome. Right. That's horrible news about where the great but, filter is. But if you're not – if for some reason those arguments are invalid or if I've never heard of them so they don't bother me, uh, I would say that that, you know, discovering and studying that kind of life might be extremely valuable. Uh, oh, I'm sure there'd be a lot of processes people could learn from, industry could use. Maybe yeah, you could convert I mean, some chemicals into others in an efficient way that we could make use of. Yeah, I mean – uh, you know, even if it was a 10% shot, it'd probably be worth the cost of a conventional Mars thing just to go there and look. Now, but, uh, I don't, one, one way, but, reason there might be a lot of life in these bodies is it, it could be that the, the initial life developed not on a planet, but in space and comets, there's a lot more surface area. And then that spread and landed on Earth and also it, it could be that, you know, the, the basic, Panspermia. Yeah, yeah, yeah that but could if, be. But if that were true, A, from your filter point of view, that's a bad thing. Oh, no, no, because it might have only happened once. You know, it happened once 100 million years ago, and so there hasn't been enough time okay. for that All to right. give rise to many civilizations. Oh, by, by the way, you did notice that, what was it, a couple of years ago, we found this odd-looking, I mean, in this odd because it seemed to be much longer than it was wide, uh, object that drifted in from outside the solar oh, system. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which we had never, ever seen one before, and now, like, within the last year, we found another. Yeah. Well, you know, again... You know, science fiction has thought about that. And it's one of the traditional ways, particularly if you're dealing with dumb people, is if you want to take a further look as you disguise your spaceship as some sort of natural object that just happens to be floating into the solar system. Just so, you know, if you see a third one next year, I, I think you should. Uh, what was it? There were old phrases about this. Once is a coincidence. Two is interesting. Three is enemy action. Uh, well, they but, probably but, could master stealth, I would guess, right? That if they wanted to, you know, send a probe. Well, maybe this is the way to do it. Disguise it as something else. Uh, 
Uh, hard to say. Uh, you know, and, you know, one thing about science fiction is it can be very inconsistent. You can have certain things the guy's doing that are beyond anything we know how to do, and there's all kinds of other things. Oh, I mean, your perfect version. I mean, some of this is from the from the time it was written, but you have guys who are zooming around the galaxy in faster than light ships and calculating their uh, uh, their trajectories with extremely advanced slide rules. Uh, although, you know, maybe we'll find out that slide rules were the right way to go and we've made a mistake switching to computers and everything. Uh, uh, I mean, Asimov had stories in which you had this, you know, had all sorts of gears and cams and you could flip it around and it would, you know, you know, and you just twitch it and it solves a differential equation for you. It sounded, it's called the analytical rule. It sounded really cool. We should figure out how to make one. Uh, there, you know, there actually is interest in, you know, things where technology, a certain technology died. But the question is, where would it have gone if it had lived? Uh, and there are things like that that, you know, in retrospect, who knows? If we hadn't all concentrated on X, maybe, you know, U and V would have been better. It's, yeah. but we don't really do things that way. Uh, uh, well, yeah, it's path dependence in technology. Yeah, I mean, what you know, the classic example that people talk about a lot is when uh, people in the Middle East and in Africa switch to camels instead of wheeled mm -hmm. vehicles. They work mm -hmm. better, but they don't have the same upgrade path. We do not yet have a camel that you can enter at the Indiana, Indianapolis 500. Mm -hmm. uh, not have any hope to win. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I think we should probably uh, wrap it up. Okay, but you know, we should have another on this timely question, uh, assuming that a week is not too late. <laughs> on, on pandemics, yeah, we'll see. I think it's interesting, uh, and uh, uh, but I don't think it probably has much to do with existential risk. But, you know, there are a lot of risks in between stubbing your toe and ending the human race, and many of the ones in that category are, in fact, worth thinking about. <laughs> I, I agree, definitely. Okay. okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much, Greg, for being on the podcast again. And uh, for people listening, if you like this podcast, um, if you could go to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and um, upvote us from at least what they say on other podcasts, that helps this one spread. Uh, so thanks very much. And uh, thank you, Greg. Goodbye. Bye-bye.